Good morning, church. You fearless ones. Crowds are no barrier to you. You're going to worship the Lord regardless of the headlines and the news. Thank you so very much for being here and being here early on a Sunday morning. I got a couple of emails this week reminding me that today is International Women's Day. And so I want to recognize that and and say that women are among my two very favorite groups of people in the world. And so congratulations on this being your day. Um, And in fact, it probably is kind of timely because it is the dynamics of women and men and women and men in relationship that form the subject of the message this morning. If you've been tracking with us over these past weeks as we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, you know that today we get to Jesus' teaching on divorce. And I want to say just a few words at the outset before we begin to dig into that text that uh, this is a subject I know that strikes very close to the most tender parts of our lives. And for some of you, you're in a marriage where you've been struggling for a long time and you're struggling still. And so this will be, this will be sensitive. And for some of you, you grew up in a family where you experienced the tragedy and the side effects of divorce and you still feel the weight and the sadness of that. Uh, for some of you, you've lived through the pain of divorce and you're, you're healing and recovering from that. Maybe some of you have even been part of a church that's dealt harshly with divorce and have made you or a member of your family feel like you are guilty of God's one great unforgivable sin and that you are somehow on the damaged goods list in God's kingdom. And I hope that if that describes any of you, that what we can try and do here together today is bring a message of clarity, certainly, but also of hope and of healing. So that's, that's the context. Again, we're looking together at what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this part of his teaching is is linked to the section that we looked at last week and the one the week before. Remember the key goals of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is describing the good life, blessed, how blessed are you, the good life. And then he's also describing in the context of the good life, what does it mean to be a good person? And he starts with anger. And he says, you know, anger, a good person when it comes to that, is not just someone who avoids Moses' commandment not to kill people. That's setting the bar kind of low, isn't it? It says it's having a right heart when it comes to things like love and reconciliation and forgiveness. He goes on to talk about sexuality, and we dealt with that last week. Again, a good person is not just someone who avoids adultery. It's someone who has learned with God's help to subordinate some of those desires that derail us in life and subject them again to the will and purpose of God and to what's good in life. And now he's going to talk about what constitutes a good person when it comes to divorce. I'm going to warn you, because we're going to read the words together in just a minute, that they sound a bit odd. And on first glance, they sound very harsh. But let's read them. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, in verses 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there you have it. Two verses. Biting, hard, uh, but there's a depth to them. 
You read the verses, it probably raises all kinds of questions if you've never seen them just in that context. Uh, I thought adultery was having an affair with a married person. Why would divorcing my wife make her the victim of adultery? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, and if I marry a woman who's been divorced, that means she's single now. Why would, they, why would that make me an adulterer? Again, what's going on here? I hope you'll acknowledge me, with me that that Jesus was actually a pretty smart guy. That these weren't just words spoken right off the cuff and weren't said with a good reason. And what I'd like to do is walk through them one step at a time, one section at a time, and understand what Jesus is really driving at. And I think you'll find underneath it there and something filled with hope. First thing you notice as you look at the verb, uh, at the words there, is that Jesus is addressing men. Now, that's not the context for the whole Sermon on the Mount. He had large crowds in front of him. But in a couple of sections, the section we looked at last week around sexuality and the section we're looking at this week around marriage, he's talking to men. Now, why is that? Could it be because women are relationally superior to men? They don't need the same kind of remedial work? Karina could probably make a case that that's true in our house anyway. But, but no, it's because in that day... It appears that for the most part, only men had the power to get a divorce. That's why he speaks to men. In the ancient world, generally, if you were a woman, your husband could divorce you for any reason just by walking out of the house. That was enough. The woman would be stuck with the kids and with no money. And in the unlikely event that she began to gain a little bit of money, let's say her, her kids grew up and started to make the farm profitable or or she went off to Nineveh and played blackjack and struck it rich, whatever it was, the original husband could return and reclaim her and the kids and all the money. It went back to him. No man is ever going to marry you if husband number one is still lurking around out there with a claim on your life. So if you're a woman and your marriage died, you were in deep, deep trouble. Does that make sense? The law of Moses, the Old Testament that we read about, was striking in the concern it shows for women. Let me show you an example. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Again, this looks harsh on the surface, but I want you to zero in on what's going on here. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, He should write her a certificate of divorce and give it to her and then send her from his house. That certificate was actually a way of protecting women in the ancient world. It meant that her first husband couldn't come back and lay a claim on her. That certificate of divorce, and lots and lots of these have been found by archaeologists, said you are free to remarry any Jewish man that you wish. What Jesus is saying here when he's teaching about divorce is, hey gang, it looks like you've been dividing up people into two groups. You've been separating the sheep and the goats. And on the one side, the good people are the people who walk out on their wives but give them a certificate of divorce before they go. And the bad people are the ones who just walk out and abandon them. And you've been thinking marriage exists for my fulfillment and I'm free to divorce any time for any reason as long as I give the certificate. Then I'm righteous in God's eyes and I'm in compliance. Remember this this section, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not really about 
He's not giving new laws. New laws about anger or adultery or oaths. He's offering these illustrations, these descriptions of a way that a person who is trying to achieve a life of, of surpassing goodness, of surpassing righteousness, of, of truly God-given inner worth, of a way a person would feel and act and the choices they would make. We know that even in our day, that divorce is usually disproportionately hard on women. Divorce is the number one cause of poverty in Canada. But in that culture, it was so much worse. Unless the woman had a rich relative who would take her in as a quasi-servant, that was unlikely. She really had only two options for her and her family. She could remarry another man, one who would receive her as damaged goods, often one of multiple wives, or she could go into a life of prostitution. In either case, she was living the life of somebody who had been sexually degraded and painfully living under the banner of adultery. Jesus is saying, you know, in the kingdom of God, a kingdom-minded husband would see that And that man would be more concerned about her well-being than his gratification. A man who's living in the kingdom of God would reject that, let's just keep my options open and look for an upgraded spouse. Reject that mentality and seek his wife's welfare above everything else. He'll want the good of his wife. That's what it would mean to say, bless her. He would want good things for her. Again, Jesus is not describing laws here. He's illustrating a new perspective on life. But I know, and you probably came expecting this today, I know when people read this teaching, when they read the Bible, the primary question they have around this issue is not goodness or not righteousness, it's this. Is divorce ever permissible in God's eyes? And if so, when? What does the Bible say? And I don't want to... I don't want to avoid the question, and I don't want to circle around it. Instead, what I'd like to do is take a deeper dive into what the Bible says and the world that the Bible is speaking to when it says it. So let's look at what what the world thought. Let's look at what the rabbis in the days of Jesus taught about divorce. And then let's set it up, and let's contrast what Jesus is saying. We've already said, we looked at Deuteronomy in, in that chapter, in chapter 24, that it recognizes divorce on the grounds of, and the word in the translation was indecency. Hebrew language, that's sexual immorality. Infidelity, unfaithfulness. That whole, whole, I don't know, fallen area of human relationship. That was one ground for divorce, where there would always be permission to to be remarried. But then we wonder, I mean, what about other cases? What about abuse? The terror of domestic violence. What about abandonment? And those cases were covered in the Old Testament as well. There's a passage in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, when it talks about what happens if a man takes a second wife. And often that would happen in the ancient world. They would have multiple wives. Again, a passage designed to protect the rights of the first wife. It says, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, of her clothing, 
of her marital rights, or sometimes in the old translation would say of conjugal love. If he doesn't provide for her with these three things, she is free to go without payment of money. Once again, the law is trying to protect the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. When a husband took a new wife, the second wife tended to get all the good stuff. The first wife is relegated to the sidelines. The law says, no, no, you made a vow. You vowed to provide support and food and clothing and love. And if you break that vow, then she is certificate and being entitled to remarry. Over time, what happens is the, rabbi, the rabbis look at these two passages, one in Deuteronomy, the other in Exodus, and they say, here is the overarching principle involved. Marriage is a vow, a vow that covers these three areas. Fidelity, that's faithfulness, provision, and love, meaning intimacy and affection. And where one of those vows or more than one are broken... The law allows for divorce and remarriage. The rabbis would actually go into great detail about what constituted breaking the vows. For example, when it came to the subject of conjugal love, rabbis said that husbands needed to be intimate with their wives at least twice a week, or she could divorce him. Actually, it's in, it's in the rabbinic writings. Or they said... If the husband was a donkey driver, it was okay just once a week. Because that's, that's like being a long-haul truck driver. You're just away a lot. But, and this is where you get the sense that it was men who wrote these laws, but if the husband was unemployed, he had to offer it every night. Or she could divorce him. I'm not making this up. Now, did the rabbis believe there could be biblical grounds for divorce around abandonment or abuse? Of course they did. Abandonment was the most extreme form of breaking the law to provide. And abuse is the most extreme form of breaking the law to love. So that's, that's kind of the, if you'd like, the framework. The rabbinic framework for an understanding of divorce and marriage and remarriage. But in Jesus' day, there's this new development, and it's radical. Two of the most famous rabbis... In the days of Jesus, just a few decades before he appeared on the scene, were a man named Hillel and another man named Shammai. Rabbi Hillel has this radical interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, and he claimed what Deuteronomy is teaching is that a man could divorce his wife for any cause at all. And so the school of Rabbi Hillel decided that this any cause divorce would allow for separation in any conceivable situation. They began to write down potential ones. Again, I'm not making this up. If she spoiled his dinner, if she walked around with her hair unbound, if she argued in a voice loud enough to be heard next door. And this is a new thing that's appearing in Jesus' day. Any cause divorce. Now, there was only one drawback to any cause divorce. It was expensive. Unless you could prove that your spouse was guilty of one of the big three, you know, uh, infidelity or abuse or abandonment. If it was an any cause divorce, then you had to pay back what was called the ketubah, the dowry. 
all the money that the, the wife's family gave you in exchange for, for taking her into your household and agreeing to provide for her. You had to give it all back, the marriage inheritance. But if you did that, then you could get divorced for any reason at any time. No strings. And so this is appearing, and it became immensely popular. By far, the most common occurrences of divorce were these any-cause divorces. And we know about them in Scripture. In fact, one of the most famous stories in Scripture concerns the family of Jesus himself. Remember that episode where Joseph finds out that his betrothed Mary is pregnant? Read the Scripture there. Matthew 1.19 Because Joseph didn't want to expose her to public disgrace... That means a public, a public accusation of adultery. One of the big three reasons for divorce. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. And actually, if you look at it, that's not a vague expression or a vague adjective. It's talking about any cause, divorce. It meant he would pay the price. He wouldn't forfeit the inheritance. He would continue to provide for the child. So that, that whole school of thought, any cause divorce, is based on the teaching of this one influential rabbi, and it caught like wildfire in the ancient world. There was this other group. There was Rabbi Shammai and his followers. They said, no, 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 no. Deuteronomy 24 only refers to these situations of extreme infidelity. Only breaking the vows, the vows of provision and love were legal grounds for divorce. Any cause divorce, this is wrong. And so in Jesus' debate, Jesus' day, there's this big debate between the two schools. Now let me have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Let me give you a minute to find that, because this is, this is key. This is absolutely key to understanding Jesus' teaching. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees have cornered Jesus, and as they did so many times... They were setting him up with a question that's actually a trap. Matthew 19, verse 3. Let's go back just one verse. And here comes the question that is actually a trap for Jesus. The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Again, a technical expression. Is it lawful, any cause, divorce? And when they did this, they're not asking Jesus, Rabbi, is divorce always against the law? That was never debated. Because divorce was recognized in the laws of Moses, they wouldn't ask, is it lawful to obey Moses' laws? What they're asking Jesus is, are you a Hillel guy or are you a Shammai guy? What do you think about this divorce thing that's running rampant in the world? That's why it's a trap. In fact, here's really why it's a trap. You remember in any of your readings of Scripture, any of your retellings of the Christmas story, one of the most infamous of characters, that guy named Herod? Do you remember anything about Herod's life story? You remember he'd been married to his first wife, but he fell in love with another woman. Herodias was her name. Not just another woman, but a married woman. So he's married and she's married. And not just he's married and she's married, But he's married, and she's married to Herod's brother. So Herod divorces his first wife. He gets an any-cause divorce. 
Herodias divorces her husband. Again, and any cause, divorce. And the two of them are married. And this is done in full view of the public. And one courageous prophet of God speaks out against it. Remember who it was? John the Baptist. And Scripture records it. John courageously says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to give to her this any cause divorce. It's not. Herod cut his head off. What do we know about Herod? We know that he's also looking for Jesus. He's been looking for Jesus from the moment that his birth was first announced and those wise men came on pilgrimage to find him. So when Jesus says, you know what? John was right. Any cause divorces are wrong. Guess who the first person these religious leaders are going to make sure hears about this? Herod. They're setting him up. Now let's look how Jesus responds, because this is the heart of it. Matthew 19, 4-6. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there's no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What's Jesus doing? He's taking marriage all the way back to creation, all the way back to Genesis. This is absolutely loaded. If you look carefully at what God is doing in Genesis... He separates, and then he joins together. Read closely the account of Genesis. He separates the light from the darkness, but then he joins them together to make a day. He separates the sky from the earth, but then he puts them together to make the environment. He separates the dry land from the seas, but he puts them together to make our planet. Creation is God separating and then joining together as a way of defeating chaos And bringing, well, the beautiful word is shalom. Peace and order and beauty to the world. And then he creates a man. And he makes a woman. And if you remember how he makes a woman, what does he do? He takes a rib. Yeah, now you think, well, that seems a little unscientific. I mean, how does that work? great Old Testament scholar, a man named John Walton, writes brilliantly about this. And actually, you'll find this in your translations. Have a look, uh, if you want to flip back at some point today to that account in Genesis, and you'll probably see down in the notes that the word that historically we have put in as rib, we have an attachment to that, but, but actually, it's better translated as side. From the side of a man comes a woman. There again is God creating. It's not like Lego bricks. It says something about the intention of God in marriage. They are created to stand side by side. They have a capacity for separateness. God separates. But also this capacity for oneness. Side by side. God creates them male and female, made to be separated so they can be joined Together, the two shall become one flesh. This is new creation. This is new shalom. This is the heart of a marriage based on servanthood and oneness. And it's a beautiful passage and 
It's why we use it at weddings to this very day. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that divorce is not just breaking the rules. It's undoing creation. It's unraveling shalom. I think that's why he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's why in the Bible, divorce is such a serious thing. And if you ask anybody who's been through it, they will nod their head in agreement. Said, it's absolutely, it's, it's the most painful thing I've ever been through in life. I stood in a chapel or in a church like this and I exchanged vows and I thought that would be the source of my life's greatest joy. And it became life's deepest pain. The Bible takes divorce very seriously. And if you're feeling a little bit heavy right now, if you're feeling the weight of that pain, I want you to understand how the disciples felt when Jesus first taught this stuff. If you read on in in Matthew 19, if you still have it open, when Jesus finished teaching, the disciples' response was this. This is in verse 10. They said to them, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, isn't it better just not to get married? The Pharisees, who are there too, they're not sure Jesus can be right. So they have another question. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife this certificate of divorce and then let her go? Referring back to that Deuteronomy 24 passage. Jesus says, Matthew 19, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Here at last, Jesus is getting to the real issue, the grounds for divorce. And we've seen it over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not about behavioral compliance, just sticking to the rules. It's a matter of the heart. The problem that necessitates the tragedy of divorce, and it's always a tragedy, is the ultimate problem of the human condition. It's it's hard-heartedness. Jesus doesn't say Moses commanded you to get divorced. He says he permitted it because of hard-heartedness. In our day, what's the most common reason for divorce? Yeah, I heard somebody say it. Yeah, irreconcilable differences. Yeah, it could be money, it could be lots of... Incompatibility. Because of incompatibility, Moses said, give the woman a certificate of divorce. No, that's not what Moses said, and that's not what Jesus says. G.K. Chesterton, one of our our great humorous, insightful Christian thinkers, said, I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive that instance when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. There may be breaking of core marriage vows, and even that's not mechanical or legalistic grounds for divorce. But if your spouse breaks a vow and then is repentant and soft-hearted, rebuild the marriage. If your spouse refuses to repent, if there's just a stubborn, defiant, continued decision to reject reconciliation, to refuse counsel, a continued rejection of physical intimacy, a, a willful continuation of patterns of deceit and abandonment and cruelty, 
then sadly, divorce may be the only option. But realize it's always a tragedy. The words here. And I want to speak to those who are married. If you're married, grow your marriage. Don't take it for granted. If you leave a white post long enough, it becomes a black post. Don't just leave your marriage sitting there. Know the details of your spouse's day. Serve your spouse. Cheer on your spouse. Work at your marriage. Speaking on behalf of Karina and I, I I have to tell you that our marriage is far, far from being perfect. Being married to Karina is the number one human gift that I have. She's my number one critic. But she's also my number one fan. And if you think those things don't go together, you don't know what love looks like. You don't know what it is to be married to someone who wants you to become your best self. When she's in fan mode, when she's just cheering me on, encouraging me, affirming, praising, I love that. (laughs) When she's in critic mode, challenging me, confronting me, getting in my face, I love that too, mostly. (laughs) But it's worth it. If you're married, maybe your assignment today is just this. Ask your spouse, how are we doing, really? And then listen. And listen without being defensive. Every marriage can grow because every person can grow. If your marriage is hard, and yeah, Karina and I have known those seasons, seek wise counsel. Pray, read, ask friends for prayer, get help, get support. It is work worth the heroic effort that it will take. As marriage is what God has joined together. And then just a word to some of you who are working on marriages that are hard right now. I want you to know that this is a place where it's okay to say it's hard. And there are people here who want to cheer you on. By the way, guess how many perfect marriages we have? Just by show of hands. Every marriage, every marriage is a marriage between two great big sinners held together by the grace of God. Right? And I know there are some churches where there's this kind of separation where the married people are good and the divorced people are bad. And it was precisely that kind of superficial approach to who's good and who's not that Jesus is going against in the Sermon on the Mount. And I say that because if you've been through divorce and you've ever wondered whether God has abandoned you, you need to hear that He is certainly not. I want to end just with these these two illustrations. Who do you think? Give this a thought. 
Who do you think the most significant spiritually person, the most significant spiritual influence of a person that had been through divorce might be in the Bible? A divorced person who exerted tremendous spiritual influence. At first I thought, maybe that Samaritan woman. Remember that story, the woman at the well? She'd been through five husbands. Now she was with another man who she wasn't married to. Her life had just been a horror of being passed from one man to the next, divorce after divorce after divorce. Jesus honors her with the longest conversation ever recorded in the Scripture between the Messiah and a human being. And we know as a result, she becomes the first preacher about Jesus. And she goes back and she tells her whole city the story and her whole town comes out to see him. She saves her town. But I think she might only be number two. Let me tell you who I think the most significant spiritual divorced person is. Back up one step primary language that God uses to describe, to describe his relationship with people is the language of a covenant, like a marriage. His people were like his bride. Jesus refers to you, the church, in the same way. You're like a bride. I want you to listen to these words. God speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 3.8. I gave faithless Israel their certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. That's God. God knows the humiliation and the rejection and the pain and the betrayal of hard-hearted people like me. God is a divorcee. Put that one on Twitter and see how much trouble I get in. And I don't say it lightly because that's not the end of the story, is it? God also invents the first divorce recovery program. It happens at a place called Calvary. The price is one blood-stained cross and Jesus paid it, but the program is still in session. And the deep reality is that we're all implicit in that divorce that God's talking about. We've all been unfaithful. And that's why any church that divides people into non-divorced, second-class Christians, or first-class Christians, and, and divorced second-class Christians, is both theologically errant and spiritually destructive. We all need the cross. We all go there in community, married, single, The recent study, 10,000 seniors from Yale University, it showed that those who were alone were twice as likely, twice as likely to die from all causes over a five-year period than those who had some significant friendship or relationship in their life. Twice as likely to die. That's why we joke that the motto for our small group ministry ought to be, join a small group or die. <laughs> but... It's the place where we try and give expression to what we believe, that the church ought to be a place where everyone is welcome. 
where we recognize that nobody is perfect, where we're not we're all just sinners whose lives are a mess apart from God, who are learning to live as apprentices to Jesus in the reality of His kingdom. That's why we believe that this is a place where anything is still possible. Healing from divorce is possible. Strong marriages are possible. Forgiveness is possible. Grace is possible. Whatever you do, don't miss the grace. In fact, let me just pray for that for all of you now. God, let it come wave upon wave of healing, restoring, convicting grace. God, for, for those who, who need grace to heal from the pain of deep loss, a relationship shattered and broken, a, a covenant left in shambles, God, let your grace come. For those who feel like their marriage is hanging by a thread, let the reconciling power of grace come into their lives. For those whose marriages feel like they're ticking along, but but only just at the status quo. Let rich wave of opportunity and grace flow into their lives as their marriage moves from mediocrity to strength and then strength to greater strength. But let healing come. Let it come in Jesus' name. Amen.